Well, turn with me now, once again, to Psalm 102, once again to the Psalms, Psalm 102. This is another psalm that will be quoted in just a moment in Hebrews chapter 1. So very shortly, we'll turn over to Hebrews chapter 1, which is our sermon text this morning. We'll see there a list of quotes, one of which is coming from here, from Psalm 102. If you remember Psalm 102, or if you get there and you take a quick glance at it, you realize it is pretty much the other end of the emotional spectrum from Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is the wedding day where the conquering king is bringing into his palace his beautiful princess. Everybody's happy. There's just joy everywhere. Psalm 102 is not that. He's alone. He's in the wilderness. He feels like a pelican in the desert. Pelicans don't live in the desert. You know, it's sad. It's lonely. It feels afflicted and oppressed. And so to that end... Psalm 102, a prayer of the afflicted, when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before God. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I lie awake. And am like a sparrow alone on the housetop. My enemies reproach me all day long. Those who deride me swear an oath against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath. For they have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a shadow that lengthens. And I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever, and the remembrance of your name to all generations. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come, for the servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in his glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. This will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from the height of a sanctuary. From heaven the Lord viewed the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner to release those appointed to death. To declare the name of the Lord in Zion and His praise in Jerusalem. When the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. I said, O my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. 
For your years are throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. Amen. The psalmist in his solitude, that's actually kind of a positive word. The psalmist in his complete and utter desolation, his loneliness, recognizes both the pain and brevity of his life. In verses 1 through 11, he is lamenting not only that his life is short, but that it is also full of sorrow. But then there's a, trans, there's a transformation of his mindset beginning in verse 12, where he recognizes the eternality of God. In, in contrast to him, whose life is short and painful, God endures forever. Specifically, God's people, verses 13 through 17, God's word, verses 18 through 22, and God's works, verses 23 through 28. In this way, the psalmist comforts himself that while he as an individual is not designed for great things here on earth, and while he as an individual is not designed to be on earth forever, In the face of his seemingly insignificant existence, in the face of his brevity, he comforts himself. God is not like me. God is eternal. And his word and his works and his worship endure forever. Now why would this be a comfort? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. Our sermon text this morning is from Hebrews chapter 1. We're in our second sermon in this sermon series from the book of Hebrews. We've already done verses 1 through 4, so we're going to pick up with verse 5. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, going through verse 14. Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. Here again, the word of the Lord. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. 
But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Amen and amen. Last May, for reading week, I pulled together a stack of books on shepherding, went up into the mountains of Vermont and read through the stack. You heard the sermon series in January and February that came out of that reading week. While we were up there, we also got to go out and see a bit of the historic sites, a bit of the uh, Green Mountain Boys and Ethan Allen. We got to visit Jake Lutz, see his place, hang out with Blue, his dog. We got to do a little hiking in the woods. On our way back down out of the mountains of Vermont, we realized that there's one more stop we had to make while we were there, right? Ben and Jerry's. We pull up the hill to the left, pull into the parking lot, and there's the big factory where all the delicious ice cream is made. And you go around the back side of the factory, and there's that little storefront where you can buy some of that fresh out-of-the-factory ice cream. You walk up to it, and, and there's the menu board, and it's as wide as the entire storefront. You can't read it all from one place. You have to migrate down the menu to see the flavors, the toppings, the presentations, the different ways you can get this myriad of deliciousness. For several minutes, we were there taking stock, evaluating our options, making our game plan. If you get this one, I'll get this one, and then we can share. If, you know, that kind of idea. And eventually, guess what we did? We walked up and we got ice cream and we ate it. Because it's a great bit of silliness to show up and admire those big, beautiful building, buildings with all their fantastic machinery and not eat their ice cream. It's a great bit of silliness to show up and admire that beautiful menu with all of its wonderful pictures, its fantastic fonts, and its great descriptions of everything under the sun, and not eat the ice cream. You guys maybe know where I'm going. It is a great shame to show up to worship Lord's Day after Lord's Day. To sing the Psalms of Jesus, to read the Bible of Jesus, to hear the sermons of Jesus, and to not taste His goodness. This is what the author to the book of Hebrews, indeed the Holy Spirit, is concerned about in Hebrews chapter 1. You see, his audience, the first century Hebrews, are tempted to leave the faith of Jesus and to go back. To go back, as it were, to the Old Testament and to the ways of their fathers. This is a temptation that on the face of it is incomprehensible to us. And yet, if we consider their likeness to us and and how we are sorely tempted to go back to the ways of the world with which we are so familiar. That we are tempted to linger in the habits of sin that have dug deep ruts in our hearts and in our minds and our way of thinking and feeling. 
How likely it is that we are to live in this world devoted to the things that are the self-righteous, religious veneer of Christianity, but not Christ himself. You see, the author, the Holy Spirit, is impressing upon his audience that you can't go back to the old ways. At the end of the book, he will establish that Jesus is greater than the temple. You can't go back to the brick and the stone. The flesh and the blood are better. In the middle of the book, he will establish that Jesus is greater than the high priest. You can't go back to the children of Aaron. It is the son of David who is greater. Here at the beginning of the book, in a a few weeks' time, we'll see how he establishes that Jesus is greater than Moses. You can't go back to Sinai and the law, for there is one greater than Moses who has come. And here at the very beginning of the book, he establishes that you cannot go back to the angelic revelation that belonged to the patriarchs in Genesis. You see the chronology that the book of Hebrews establishes. That when God first dwelt with us in a temporary way, He visited Abraham and they were angels. And they discussed Sodom and Gomorrah. And they discussed together the salvation of Lot. And they discussed the coming of the birth of Isaac. And when Jacob set out away from the land of promise, it was there at Bethel that he saw angels ascending and descending on the ladder. It was an angel who visited Laban and said, don't you dare touch my servant Jacob. And it was an angel with whom Jacob wrestled beside the brook the night before Esau arrived. You see, the patriarch's relationship with God was through angels, but not ours. According to Hebrews 1.4, we have something far better. A name that is far better. Because the word angel in the Greek is, is just the Greek word, angelos. It's not been translated. If we were to actually put it in our English language, their name is messenger. And we have someone whose name is better than messenger. According to verses 5 and 6, his name is son. The Son is greater than the Messenger. In order to prove that this name, the Son of God, is greater than the angelic name, a Messenger of God, our author depends on seven quotes from the Old Testament. Why seven? Because seven is the number of perfection, completeness, and perfect... I already said perfection. Perfection and completeness. I'll stop there. It is the number that shows that he has proved his point in full. If he can hand you seven Old Testament quotes which demonstrate that Jesus is greater than angels in revealing God to us, then he's proved his point. He can rest his case. Of these seven quotes... Notice that seven is the same number of references we had in verses one through four. Four of them are going to speak about the person of Christ, and three of them will speak about the work of Christ. This is the same pattern from verses one and four reversed. In verses one and four, it was four statements about the person of Christ, and three 
You guys do better math than I do. You can figure it out yourselves. Go home and read it. In these seven quotes, four about the person of Christ, three about the work of Christ, he establishes that Jesus is the Son and Heir of God. And as such, He alone should be worshipped. The first two quotes are given to us in verse 5. No angel was ever said, or ever heard said, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Then again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. These two quotes are put in parallel in verse 5 by the phrase, and again. By putting and again between the two quotes, the Holy Spirit is showing, the Holy Spirit is showing to us that this relationship between Jesus and the Father of Father and Son is not a unique circumstance. It's not obscure. It's something that is grounded and established. There are two cataclysmic events in the Old Testament that point us to this reality. You are my son, today I have begotten you. There in verse 5, from Psalm 2. Yet again, I will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son, from 2 Samuel 7. These are from the life and experience of David. David, it would seem, receives from God through Nathan the prophet this message. Solomon isn't your ordinary kid. Solomon is a type and shadow of a kid who is to come. He will rule and reign as the descendant of David, but also as a, as a theological prophetic picture of the real son, Jesus, who is to come. He will be treated as a Christ, as a little Christ, as a picture of Christ. This is why in the two phrases, he says, today I have begotten you. That is to say, Solomon himself is begotten of David. He says again, I will be to him a father. That is to say, Solomon's father is actually David. So this language of variation points us to the historic reality that these terms originally belonged to Solomon and his theological or Christo-anticipatory of Christ Adoption as the type of Christ. But not so with Christ. He is actually the Son. What then do we mean when we say He is the Son and today He is begotten? A theologian no less than Augustine said, It means today as in every day. He is eternally begotten. Calvin takes exception with Augustine and says, no, the today refers to the earthly existence and ministry of Christ. That Christ, yes, eternally begotten of the Father, was nevertheless manifested to be the Son of God in His incarnation, in His resurrection, and in His ascension. Whatever we mean by today, this much we mean. Jesus is the Son of God. Of God. Whatever the theological disputation, this fact remains. Jesus is God's Son. By adding the second quote, the Holy Spirit also points to us that it is not mere legal or covenantal structure. I will be to him a father. God has pledged that throughout the earthly and heavenly ministry of his Son, Jesus Christ, 
he will communicate to him a fatherly disposition. I will treat him as a father treats his son. Do you know what this means? It means that all those sweet stories where Jesus is richly blessed and exalted and glorified is a sign and picture of how our Heavenly Father treats all of us who are adopted in Christ. It also means that it's not outside our Father's purview to crucify His Son, His only Son whom He loves. For like a father, He chastises those whom He loves. My friends, what we must grasp about our relationship with God is that if we have a relationship with God in Christ, we have a loving Father, even when it hurts. We have a loving Father, especially when it hurts. Here is the truth. Jesus is His Son. And that did not exempt Him from a cross. And so too, dear children... You who are adopted into this family as a brother of Christ, to you I say, recognize you are not exempt from a cross. Your Savior said, take up a cross and follow me. But secondly, he says to the angels a different message. Just as we see in verse 5, that the message to Jesus is, you are my son, and you will be treated like a son, loved like a son, So we see in verse 6 and 7 that the message to angels is, and you will be his servant. When the firstborn came into the world, or rather was brought into the world, verse 6, he commanded the angels of God to worship him. And he said again to the angels in verse 7, they are spirits and ministers as a flame of fire. Now this first phrase in verse 6 He again brings the firstborn into the world. Again, has much debate. What do we mean by this? By firstborn, we cannot mean he is the first creation of God. Jesus was not created. He's eternally begotten. What we mean instead is heir. In this ancient society, firstborn means that Jesus' relationship to God is that he is his heir. He is the one who is with him in ruling and reigning everything. He is the firstborn, the one who has right and prerogative to all that the Father possesses. And when it says brought him into the world, this is an incredibly rich image. This is the word that is used of birth. This is the word that is used of fathering and of mothering. The word that is used to communicate incarnation when we speak of Jesus Christ. But it says again. So does it mean his first coming or his last coming? Again, the theologians go to war with each other. And I don't know which one it is. But I do know this. That when Jesus came into the world the first time and was but a little baby lying in a manger living there among the animals, because they were a good source of heat in a society that didn't have electricity, he was there worshipped by the hosts of heaven. And indeed, all the angels of God worshipped him. So too, when he returns at the sound of the trumpet to make all things new, 
He will be worshipped by all the heavenly hosts. He is the Son of God, beloved by God. He is also the heir of God, worshipped with God. But then the angels serve Him. This quote from Psalm 104 seems to miss its mark when we read our Old Testaments, which depend on the Hebrew. Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers flames of fire is actually a phrase from the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. In our version, it's simply the Hebrew author talking about lightnings and wind and thunderstorms. But in the Septuagint, it takes that thunderstorm imagery and makes it representational of the spiritual reality. That even as you could imagine the wind coming from God in heaven to stir across the face of the earth, even as you could imagine lightning bolts being hurled out of heaven to strike the earth, so God sends forth His angels. He sends them out of heaven in order to serve on earth. By making them like a wind or a flame of fire, He notes the temporal nature of their service. They go forth like a bolt of lightning and then they are gone. They go forth like a breeze and then they pass on. They come and they serve, but it is brief. This is in contrast again to the Son, who is a firstborn brought into the world. Verse 6. There is a permanence to the presence of Christ that is unlike angelic service. They come moment by moment. He comes to dwell with us. This too then becomes our lesson. When we say in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus is the Son of God, it should undo us as we realize that we have been adopted and called by the Apostle Paul, sons of God. And that the way he loves Jesus is the way he loves you. And if that doesn't break your heart and shed your tears, i got nothing left. He loves you the way he loves Jesus. You know what else Paul says in Colossians? You are co-heirs with Christ. This permanence with which Christ comes into the world to dwell with us is one he doesn't relinquish. It's not an adoption for the rest of your childhood. And then as a teenager you can go free. It's an adoption for all eternity. It's an adoption in which He takes to Himself humanity to be with us and to be like us. He is firstborn among us from the resurrection of the dead unto the new heavens and the new earth. Friends, this is our Jesus. He is the Son of God and the heir of God. And in Him, you too are children and heirs of God. Do you worship this Jesus? Do you worship this Jesus? He then turns and gives us three quotes to establish what Jesus does when he has come into the world. As God-man, the Son of God, the heir of God, Jesus has come into the world to do three things. First, beginning in verse 8. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. 
Therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. This quote pulled from Psalm 45 is trying to show two important things about the work of Jesus Christ. First, when he comes into the world, justice comes into the world. He rules with righteousness. In fact, the scepter, that is the the symbol of his rule, that artifact, that archaeological, tangible piece of reality that you can grab and say, there's proof, he's ruling, is righteousness. How many of you can grab righteousness? How many of you have seen righteousness in display at the Harvard Art Museum among all those artifacts from ancient Rome and Greece? Do you, do you get the imagery that the psalmist is trying to get at here, that Hebrews is trying to get at? His, his scepter of his kingdom is righteousness. He is so thoroughly righteous, you can't even represent it with an image. It's just pure righteousness, perfect righteousness. And it's a righteousness that makes right the world. Calvin notes that this is not only a statement of how well he rules, but of how well the world turns out when he rules. It is not only a righteousness that is characteristic of his relationship to the world, it is a righteousness that results in us and in the world when he rules us. Jesus' work is to rule over this world in a way that makes it more righteous. Jesus' work is to rule over you in a way that makes you more righteous. He is the son and heir of God who has brought divinity and humanity together in his person that he might rule over you and make you righteous and bring you as a sinful human being into a loving relationship with a righteous God. This is his work. But notice the context of Psalm 45, of which the author of the book of Hebrews just nips the slightest piece at the end of his quote. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. You know one thing that's so special about Jesus' rule? Not only is it pure and perfect righteousness, it is pure and perfect joy. There is a direct relationship between the amount of joy we have and the amount of submission to Christ we have given. There is joy in Jesus. There is joy in submitting to Him. There is joy in letting Him rule over us. There is joy in following his law and obeying him. Psalm 119, oh how I love your law. It is my study all the day. We love to follow Jesus because there is an oil of gladness that is dripping down him, Psalm 133, and spilling onto his companions. He is the fountainhead of our little streams of joy. The little trickles of joy in our heart swell to mighty swollen rivers when we find the headwaters of joy, which is Jesus, and His righteous rule over us. This is His work, to come into the world, to make it all right, to make it all righteous, so that there is joy. One of the most extraordinary statements of Jesus in John 15 
that he turns to his disciples and he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he says also, I say this to you that your joy may be complete. A complete joy that's beyond my imagination. And yet it's what Jesus promises. A joy when he rules over us. Jesus' second work is found in verses 10 through 12. You, Lord, in the heavens laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. And they will grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. This quote from Psalm 102 is a reference to the work of creation. And it is a most unlikely reference. You see, when when the author of the book of Hebrews turns us to Psalm 2 and says, You are my son, today I have begotten you, we go, yes, that's the messianic psalm of Jesus. When he turns to 2 Samuel 7, and we see the prophecy concerning Solomon that's really about Jesus, we go, yes, that one makes sense. And when he turns to the other subsequent text, Deuteronomy 32, perhaps Psalm 97, we'll see. And then the other one is uh, Angels, Flames of Spirit, Psalm 104, Psalm 45 especially. We go, yes, these are Jesus psalms. This makes sense. You guys remember when we read Psalm 102? Didn't sound like a Jesus psalm, did it? In fact, when we make all of our handy-dandy little lists of the various psalms, this one doesn't get listed as messianic. And yet... According to the Holy Spirit, here in Hebrews chapter 1, Psalm 102 is a messianic psalm. The psalm that says, You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth, and they heavens are the work of your hands. That word, Lord, according to the Holy Spirit, is Jesus. He is the Son and heir of God who has made the heavens and the earth. He's already actually established this point in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. He further notes from Psalm 102 that they will perish while you remain. They will grow old like a garment. This is an extraordinary statement from the context of Psalm 102 because in Psalm 102, the individual believer was lamenting the loss of his life. A life that hadn't lived up to his high expectations and standards. His life had turned out to be, in the end, in the accumulation, far less than he wanted it to be. And now he was losing it to disease and to death. And yet, the psalmist, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is anticipating a human being who would come into this world and not be made subject to the ravages of death and disease, but instead conquer and overcome them. The heavens and the earth will grow old. They'll be rolled up like a garment and like a cloak folded up and they will be changed. Do you know the next time those words are used in the context of Jesus Christ? They're the grave clothes in an empty grave on a Sunday morning. He rolls them up, he folds them up and he sets them down on the stone to say, Psalm 102 has come. It's a messianic psalm. The Lord who established the heavens and the earth in that empty grave, that little hole in the ground in the Middle East, inaugurated a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells.
He folded up those grave clothes and said, here's the first one. There's more to come. This is his work to come into the world as the son and heir of God and to establish a rule of righteousness which brings joy to all who submit to him. This is the work of Jesus to come into the world and to take of this old, rotten, tired, sin and misery drenched estate and to make of it a new heavens and a new earth. They will be changed, but he is the same. He will not fail. Is this the Jesus you worship? Do you see him as he really is? The son and heir of God doing this great work. The third work, verse 13. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? This extraordinary quote from an extraordinary psalm, indeed the most beloved psalm in all the New Testament, Psalm 110, everybody's quoting it. It's the hip, cool psalm in the New Testament. This psalm even Jesus will reference and say, David said to my Lord, David is king and head of Israel. Who's his Lord? Jesus means rhetorically him. The Lord that is the Father said to David's Lord that is the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The thing that Jesus does now is he sits in heaven at the right hand of the Most High, enthroned in glory and beauty and majesty, enthroned in the worship and praises of all his people and of all the heavenly hosts, subduing all his enemies under his righteous rule, bringing joy into the world through that righteous rule. Making this old heavens and earth into a new heavens and a new earth. But you know what else? There are only two other references to what Jesus is doing at the right hand of God in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 8, he's standing up and he's welcoming his martyr Stephen. And in Hebrews, we're told that he's making intercession for us. Do you know that Jesus is praying for you? Do you know that Jesus is ready to leap off his throne and give you a big hug of welcome when you walk through the gates of heaven? And that's what he's doing at the right hand of God? In fact, that's the climax of our sermon passage in verse 14. Are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Why is Jesus greater than all the angels? He's God's son. He's God's heir. He is the one who is establishing a righteous rule to the joy of all people. He is the one making a new heavens and a new earth out of this place. He is the one sitting at heaven saying to his angels, Would you go help my little church out? There's such a little church there on Antrim Street. They have but a little strength. There's only a few of them. And the vast majority of them are exhausted. And overwhelmed. They're filled with all kinds of anxiety and fear. They're racked by all kinds of wickedness and weakness. And he sits in heaven and he prays for us. 
And he sits in heaven and he stretches out his righteous scepter over us. And he sits in heaven and he says to his angels, Go get them. Go get my brothers. And go bring them to me. You see, angels are messengers. And when messengers show up, they give a message. Do you know what that message is? It's Jesus. He's the one you should worship. Not the angel. There's some debate in the book of Revelation as to whether the angels of the seven churches mean the pastors or not. I am loath to associate myself with any kind of angelic being. But I have a message for you. His name is Jesus. He's God's son. He's God's heir. And he's making all things new. Especially you. This makes him greater than any angel. He has a more excellent name. Worship that name. Jesus is God's son and heir. Worship him. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day. We give you thanks for this beautiful message. Thank you for showing our Jesus to us. For revealing him to us in your word. That we might know how wonderful he is. When when we see who he is and what he has done. It is beyond our comprehension. That he who is called God's son and heir. Should love us. And give us the same name. Father, how could we say we are Christians when the Christ is your son and heir? How can we say that we are sons of the living God, heirs and co-heirs with Christ, when he is so good and so glorious and we are so not? Father, forgive us and give us hearts of worship that rejoice in him and bless his name. For he is good and we give you thanks for him. We ask these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.